Okay, uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, would you like to turn to Joel chapter 2? Joel chapter 2, and we're going to read uh, verses 18 uh, to 29. Joel chapter 2, and verses 18 to 29. Uh, from verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and he said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more take you a reproach amongst the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of your wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine Give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down your abundant rain, the early rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the, va- the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent amongst you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord, your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Our series is on the subject of the Holy Spirit and we're looking at uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And to do that, uh, we have to place the promise found in verse 28 and verse 29 in context. The people of Israel uh, were in a very desperate situation. I won't ask you to put your hands up if you're in a desperate situation, but just to know that your situation uh, may be different, but through life there are people that go through desperate situations and the Lord comes and meets with them. They were in a desperate situation. There was a locust plague that was so bad uh, that they thought it was a foretaste of the day of the Lord. They thought it was a foretaste of the end of the world. There must have been big locusts. Well, I thought that was funny, but there you go. They, they had turned away from God, and so a locust 
um, plague had come upon them, they perceived that it was from the Lord. They perceived that it was God's judgment in regard to their behaviour. That actually what was happening was not something of, uh, of an outer, if you like, uh, involvement, but that God was dealing with his people. And the people responded uh, to God's warning and they begin to seek him. They don't begin to seek him in, in a, uh, a sort of uh, enthusiastic way at first. They begin to seek him in repentance and humility. Their heads are low. Their hearts are troubled. They repentance. And in verse 18, we read the result of them coming to God in humility and repentance. Verse 18 is actually a a turning point to what we're about to read, but also is a turning point to the whole book. And we're going to look back as to uh, what what happened. Verse 18 tells us uh, that the Lord became jealous for his land and he had pity on his people. Now, there is a problem with this in regard to jealousy. Because when it says the Lord became jealous, that's not a jealous or a jealousy in the way that we understand it. Where jealousy is an emotion of negative thoughts, of uh, feeling insecurity, fear, anxiety uh, over an anticipated loss or something uh, that a person values that you, they've got it, you haven't. And we know that in our own society, in our own way, that jealousy presents all sorts of emotions, including anger, sadness, resentment, disgust, just cheesed offness, that they've got what you haven't got, all those sort of emotions. Let me just say here, the Lord cannot display those emotions. So when we read that God is a jealous God, we need to not define it by the way that we have felt, but by a biblical definition of what it means for God to be jealous. When God is jealous, it means that he will not allow a rival. He will not allow it. It means that he will protect and work into anything that interferes with that statement or with that heart. I will not allow a a rival. And the Lord became jealous because rivals had come into people's lives and said, no, there will be no uh, rival. And he had pity on his people. So what we're going to do is, just first of all, before we look at the Holy Spirit, track through how God restores his people and place the the issue of the Holy Spirit into that context. Because often these verses in Joel are taken out of context. And what I would like to do is that I'd like to make it simple. I don't want to make it a theological exercise uh, this morning. I want to try and make it really simple. And my aim really is to try and get under your skin, if I can. Now, what you can do right now is that you can go, no. Um, But I just want to say this. um, Let God deal with you how God wants to deal with you. I want to try and just get under the skin, as it were. So I want to keep it simple and try and do that. So here we go. God reverses the crisis that he'd sent before. If you look at verse 19, it says, The Lord answered and he said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. 
and I will no more make you a reproach amongst the nations. There are things that you lose when you turn your back on God. That's simple. That's one of the things that we need to know that. And sometimes that sounds a little bit hurtful to say, doesn't it? But it's true. They had lost all of these things in a locust plague. A locust plague had swept through and they'd lost all these things. The grain, the wine, the oil, they'd all gone completely. Devastated the place was. And there are things that you lose that provide daily nutrition to you from the Lord when you turn your back on God. But I want you to hear the heart of God. Because God responds to the repentant, humble heart. And he says, okay, even though you've turned your back on me, even though you have decided to live without me, you will be satisfied. Isn't that lovely? Do you know any other God like this? That the Lord comes and says, I know that you turned your back on me, but you will be satisfied again. God says uh, that he will not send that particular crisis again to them. And he says, I will no more make you a reproach amongst the nations. He didn't repeat that particular plague on his people again. What does that mean? It means that God's promises are good. That whether you have turned your back on God or whether you haven't, his promises remain good. And even in the process of you turning your back on God and returning to him, the promises still remain good because the Lord is faithful and does not change. And it doesn't mean that a promise that was given to you even many years ago that came to you and then you went, well, I'll do other things now. That promise to you still remains good because not because it's, a, it's something that happened to you, because the Lord spoke it. And he doesn't change. So we can know that. He undoes what we have done. Verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a, a parched land and a desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and the foul smell will rise, for he has done great things. Let me just try and explain this. The, ref- the, the, the norther does not refer to people like me from Wolverhampton or Geordies. Okay? This is not anything like that, all right? Let's just dismiss this. This is not your verse to get rid of me, okay? This is not your scripture reference point. This is how to get rid of Nigel. But this is the the locusts. They came from the direction of the north. And uh, one lot being driven into the sea and the other lot being driven into the desert uh, for those that come in repentance and humility, here's the God that can undo the mess that you got yourself into. That's what this issue is about. He is a God who unties, he unravels, he releases back 
all, to, 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 for, to all the things that you knew before and more. He will unravel your mess. Let me just say this. I, um, I don't know whether Steve would agree with this or Phil with this, but uh, many times that I've so- sat down in front of situations and thought, how on earth am I going to deal with this? To be uniquely reminded by the Lord that you cannot undo this at all. In fact, this morning I said to Steve exactly those same words. I I said to Steve, well, what do you think? And Steve said, I haven't got a clue, mate. He said, we can't do anything. The Lord's got to work. And that is so true. It is so true that the Lord can undo. Don't you find that's wonderful? Any mess. Now, please don't go and say, I'll test this. What I'll do is I'll go and get myself into the biggest mess and I'll stick my hands in my pockets and go, okay, Lord, try that one. Now, don't do that. That's foolishness. But if you do, God can undo it. It's wonderful to know. What a wonderful God that we've got that he will unravel, untie and release us. I just find that reassuring. You're not smiling, but it's, I like it. He leads people into the joy of restoration. They say at the end of verse 20, for he has done great things. When it's a time, when you're in a time of, let's call it your own locust plague, <laughs> uh, you are actually not in a position to cry out, he has done great things. It doesn't work that way. And all around you, there are people that long for you to be in a position when you cry out, he has done great things. The Lord has done great things. They're eager for you to do that. And it is really incredible how we know and test that a good restoration has taken place. How do we know? How do I know that this person has been restored? How do I know that? Because what happens is something wells up within them that they have to say, the Lord has done great things. That's the point. It isn't the point that you see them sort of saying, okay, well, I've stopped, you know, I'm shaving now on a Sunday. No, that isn't the thing. Suddenly, something of God bursts out of them and they have to say, the Lord has done great things. It isn't an issue of personality or anything like that. It's something that God does. It wells up within you and you think restoration is taking place. That's how you can see it. That's how you measure it. Sometimes we measure things in an incredible way, don't we? Well, they've put a tie on. That was my way of restoration when I was a young man. I put a tie and a suit on. and that was, No, the restoration process when God restores is that people cry out to God, He has done great things. Don't be fooled by anything else. Don't be fooled by declarations of promise. Well, no, I'm restored. I'm going to give 75% of my income to the Lord. Don't be fooled by those things. Don't be fooled by dancing in worship or whatever they do don't be involved in people putting their hands up or kneeling down wait to see what comes out of their mouth that they are ready to cry the lord has done great things then you can cry with them hey the lord's doing great things that's what we need to it's a bit longer than i meant to say okay so no let's no let's not do that verse 21 Fear not, O land, and, and be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. 
just to add to that great things that he has done, in restoration, gladness returns. Them's happy people. It's just simple. How can you tell? Stop there, stop being grumpy. They are happy. It's just the way that it is. How can I check this out? Happy people. We could sing a song about that, couldn't we? Does anybody, any of the younger ones know a song about smiley, happy people? No, the older ones are going, what is that? Would somebody like to sing it for the old people? Smiley, happy people. Okay, okay. We'll find it on YouTube and play it. But anyway, the point of this thing is that glad... No, flipping heck. I'll tell you, there are, there are just some people that won't grow old, will they? Could somebody, at the end of the day, find it on your phone and play to Steve, smiley, happy people? Just so that it's, just reminds me of Mr. Mosley, my Sunday school class. Anyway, <laughs> verse 22, not distracted, fear not, you beasts of the field. Uh, uh, sorry, I just looked. Uh, for the pastures of your wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit and the fig and its vine give their full yield. The locust plague and the animals, uh, the locust plague had swept through. It had not only... Uh, hit the uh, the people it had hit the animals and the countryside the whole thing had suffered when we turn our back on God let me just hear this for a moment we often what we say is that it's it's just me and the Lord no it isn't it involves no you've been brought into a community you've been saved into a kingdom you've been you so when when you stray from god it affects so many people you're not on your own i don't know whether you've ever known this when people fall away from god and you see that in the center of church life it's almost as if the whole church just for a while goes ah oh, they f- people feel this. It touches everything. Here's the interesting thing. When we are restored, that also touches everything. It touches us all. Verse 23, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down your abundant rain, the early and the latter rain before. Let me ask you a question in regard to this. Have you ever wondered this? Will I ever feel a touch of the Lord as I did before? Have you ever been in that situation when you've asked that question? If you have, look hard at this. The early and the latter rain as before. Wow. I like this God. Verse 24. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Have you ever asked this question? Will I ever be as fruitful as I was before? Look at the question. Look at the thing. Look hard again. The threshing floors will be full. I love this God. I love this God of restoration. 
Verse 25, I will destroy you in the years. Sorry, I will re- destroy, I don't know. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent amongst you. This was a literal plague, so there was a loss of years. But there was a real turning back, a real repentance and real humility. And the, the principle of this thing still applies today. God wants to bless them so much that he, that he makes it his intention to make up the lost years. What can you say about this? It is difficult, isn't it? We come back. We come back with humility. We come back with repentance. And God says, I'll make it that it was not a loss. I will make it more than again. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. The restoration of relationship always ends with one product, worship. You shall praise the name of the Lord your God. That's how it works, how it is. You can always tell. Because people burst into worshipping God again. But it leads us not only to a, a deeper and, uh, and, and a sort of expression of worship. It takes us on. If you look at verse 27, it isn't just about I've come back. Which is what people can do. Hey, I've arrived. It's more than that. Verse 27. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I the Lord your God uh, and, and there is none else. What happens in restoration and a coming back is not just that God causes people to praise him and worship him, to say that he's great, to restore them. There's not just oil and grain and all those sort of things. If you see here, there's a deeper sense of assurance. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. You know. I know God is with me. It's almost as if something comes into us and it's at a greater level before, that we're able to withstand where we didn't withstand before. Now the key to that is repentance and humility. But it says, look, I'm able to stand. I know that God is in the midst of Israel. They didn't know that before. They were the people of Israel, but they didn't seem to know it. Now they know it. It's magnificent. There's more assurance that has come. It says that they'll have a fear of the Lord. I, they'll know, I am the Lord your God. We're a bit afraid, aren't we, of talking about the fear of the Lord. But actually, in regard to sin and the way that we are, are, there are two ways that we should do. We should love the Lord. We should get excited. We should celebrate. We should be passionate about him. We should love his love and his grace and his compassion, all that sort of stuff. But we also need to know the other side of the character of God. He's fearful and holy and majestic. And you and I don't mess with him. He's not some sort of fluffy toy. This is not Winnie the Pooh. That sort of thing, hello, it's Winnie the Pooh. It's not, this is God. Why do you toy with God? Why do you mess with him? Why, why? 
And we shouldn't have just this, well, you know, God loves me and he's faithful and he's merciful and I get excited to that. Because it's one part of the character of God. We need both of them. We need to know that God loves me and he is not to be messed with. And we actually, we need to preach both. And we're in danger when we're charismatics of just preaching love and a mercy message and whatever. The, some, sometimes we're a bit afraid, even as pastors, say, please don't mess with the living God. He's awesome and mighty. Also, he changes things that drew you away from the Lord. What drew you away from the Lord? What drew you away is that there were other gods bigger than him. That's what happened, that you had other gods. And you thought, okay, well, you know, these things can be more meaningful, more satisfying, more pleasurable. Fantastic. I will move towards these gods. And what happens is when, is when you're drawn back to the Lord, you find there is none, there's no one else like him. That he is your, your peace, your satisfaction, your everything. He comes into your life. And all these things happen when you're repentant and God restores you. And as a church and as people, we would be very content, wouldn't we, if that happened? We would have a little jig and say, look at that, this so-and-so, this is what's happened. But here's the wonderful thing. The God in whom we worship does abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. And that's the problem that we think that the restoration of people is it. And it never is it. And we can get lost sometime in the issue of the prodigal son. Well, he came home. And we go, well, did the story end there? No, God's story of restoration is far bigger in blessing than we often explain it to be. And we see that here because if all those things came back, we would be satisfied. And then God says, and by the way, there's now more to come. And we go, more? There's more to come. And you think, I like this God. Because he's a God that says, that's not enough for people. I'm going to do more. And verse 28, we get to the bit, that, uh, the bit about the Spirit. And it says, and it shall come to pass afterward. Or afterwards. Just restoring somebody back to the Lord isn't just it. There is an afterwards. I think that is amazing. There's an afterwards. Do you know, every person that has walked away from the Lord, please hear this today. For you, there is, it, there is an afterwards. Despite what any elder, any pastor says, this is what the Lord says. There is an after, And it shall come to pass afterwards. And it shall come to pass afterwards. What will I do for those people? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. They'll explode with God. Your, young, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and the female servant in those days, I will pour out my spirit. <laughs> Just when you've got grain and oil and worship and all that sort of stuff, God says, what? And there's more. And you think, what? Even for me? Yeah. I'll pour out my spirit. The word poured out for you refers to large and abundance. It doesn't say, and I'll drip my spirit on rare occasions on you. It says, I will pour out my spirit. How do we know 
that this, it's a pouring out of the Spirit of God? Well, easy really, because the reference here is a side reference to a plug of... You know that, don't you? That, that was Hebrew. <laughs> it was Hebrew for a plague of locusts, see? Don't scorn. Anyway, how do you know? What will this look like? Think about it. Just think about this. You've just heard about a plague of locusts. A plague of locusts that swept through every atom of people's lives. It got into houses, under the carpet, up your trousers. They got everywhere. They ruined cattle. They ruined livestock. They ruined hills. They got into trees. They got absolutely everywhere. When you were in bed at night, they went up your nose. That made you worry. So all sleeping tonight with pegs on but they got absolutely everywhere and then when God says he says and by the way I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and they go I know what it will be like the whole thing will be like a magnificent blessing of locusts I'm just trying to work that one out. But you've got to pictorially see it. The whole place would have been swarming with locusts. It would have been black with it. And God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. It's going to be like this. Wow. He's promised it. He will, but it will not bring ruin. It will bring blessing. Here's the idea. Listen to these things. Isaiah chapter 32, verses 15. Until the spirit is poured out from on high... And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed as a forest. That's the same, isn't it? Spirit comes, boom! Instead of it being eaten away and eroded away by forest, the desert becomes a forest. See it? These are these references, they're all linked in the, they're actually all in the Bible, by the way. Verse, Isaiah 44, verses 3 and 5, I will pour out my spirit on what? A thirsty land. And streams where, what, dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring. My blessing will be on your descendants. They'll spring up amongst the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call the name of the Jacob. And another will write on his hand of the Lord's. And the name himself will by the name of Israel. It goes on. You can see this wonderful picture of the spirit invading everything. That's the way that it is. It isn't. Do you know, one of the things that bothers me about charismatic meetings, it's what I call that random thing of the random twitcher. Have you been by that? I seem to end up with them next to me at meetings. They sort of do the hot people boom, we think. Uh, and, you know, you think, what am I doing? Actually, it was never designed that the Spirit of God should pour himself out on random people. It was, it was that it should sweep through and touch every one of us. We should be all doing the one But it is, isn't it? Do you ever do that? Uh, and they always block the blooming projector, don't they? But, they do. but it is like that, isn't it? You go to a meeting and you buy Fleur Leslie. And, you, and the trouble is that you sit here and, and, you, and then you go, Lord, I'm just going to ignore Fleur because I'm not angry that the Lord is touching her and not me. And I can cope with being... And Fleur's doing the welly thing. 
And the problem is that what we've done is that we've made that what our meeting should be like. Isn't it? And I go home, what do I go? Fleur goes home with a blessing, I go home with a black eye. And that's the, that's the sort of way that it is. And we need, to, we need to, you know, sometimes John Wimber was right, he would wait. He would wait. And he would wait until, he used to say, I'm waiting for the wave. And I'd be in those meetings going, wave? What the heck does he mean by, I was a good strict Baptist in those days. Wave, what's he mean? And he would wait for the spirit of God to move on the whole people. He wouldn't be content with the odd twitcher. And we are, wouldn't we? Because you hear people say, the Lord's just touching that person. No, the Lord wants to come and touch the whole thing. The pouring out of the spirit affects the whole. It's the way that it is. So God bless you, Fleur. But there's more. It's a future promise. Let's put this down. The Holy Spirit referred to in all these cases is referring to the future. The day of Pentecost was the future uh, viewpoint from the Old Testament prophets and uh, Jesus' disciples. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them, men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, Fleur, is not drunk. No, these people are not drunk. Do you hear this? Corporate it was. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since this is only the third hour of the day. But... This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be as God declares it, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. It's a wider thing. The spirit's outpouring was prophesied for afterwards, began at Pentecost, when God introduced a greater way of of experiencing the Holy Spirit that had never been known before amongst the people of God. It refers to the experience of the Spirit that we, as Christians, are supposed to enjoy. It's a present continuous. It's a one filling and a more filling and an ever filling. I will pour out my Spirit. Think about this. Think about the context of these words. I will pour out my Spirit and afterwards I will pour out my Spirit. When does afterwards stop then? Let's do it the other way. I will pour out my Spirit afterwards. And afterwards, and afterwards, and afterwards, and afterwards, and afterwards. Isn't that wonderful? And afterwards, (laughs) there's an afterwards out there. My goodness. If you are full of the Spirit today, and I'm really pleased for you, (laughs) cheesed off but really pleased for you, that you have twitched your way through the worship. If you're full of the Spirit for you today, here's a biblical understanding. There's an afterwards for you. If you are not full of the spirits today, there's an afterwards for you. There's an afterwards for everybody. I'll pour out my spirit afterwards. I'll pour out my spirit. I'll do afterwards. When does afterwards end then? I don't know. Is it just me or is it just simple? And when does afterwards end? The only one time it can end is when Jesus returns. So therefore, there's a pouring out to be had in the afterwards. I, I said it was simple. 
The Spirit for all flesh. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. What is meant by all flesh? In the prophecy of Joel, it refers to sons and daughters and the sons and daughters of the people of Israel. When the Spirit is poured out, it gets poured out at Pentecost, and then there's an expansion that goes on. And in Acts chapter 10 and 11, it clearly tells us that the Spirit is poured out on even the Gentiles. The people that would be birthed from this community at Pentecost. That's you and I, folks. That's you and I. The promise is, has come down to us. We are the recipients of this promise. When it says, who are the sons and daughters? That's us. We go, me. And you're supposed to go, whoo, at that point. But is that, when you're reading that, you're thinking, who are these sons and daughters? You are reading you. You might as well scribble it out and just write your, or, no, please don't scribble out things in the Bible. Just, just write an asterisk and then put down me next to it. That's, that's the way that it, it works. This prophecy is about you and I. Another interpretation of this is that uh, of all flesh is all types of people everywhere, which means this, all nations. Hallelujah. This should be interesting. Asking God to pour out his spirit on all nations because the Filipinos will watch to see how the English people respond to the Spirit and so on, and the Africans and the Chinese and all those sort of people. But here's the promise. The promise isn't for a people group any longer. It's for the, the all peoples, all backgrounds. The prophecy speaks of my Spirit. It isn't just, we'll come and have a power experience then. No, Jesus, my Spirit, Jesus wants to encounter. The idea of my spirit is exactly the same that Rupert was talking about last week. That when the spirit encounters, the spirit of Jesus, that just as the disciples encountered Jesus, that, that we, through the spirit of God, encounter him. And the sign of that pouring, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And we look forward to that day. Who does that mean? Who's the sons and daughters? Us lot. It's us. We who, who experience the Spirit being poured out will spontaneously prophesy. All people everywhere prophesying. Don't you long for that one in your meetings? I look at the stuff sometimes in, in Corinth and, and people say to me, you must remember, Nigel, and Corinth was a mess. You know, terrible, terrible thing. I was brought up with that. You know, we sort of missed 1 Corinthians out because they were the mess church. Look at the mess they got in. Wouldn't you, as charismatics, like to resolve that? Wouldn't you like a little bit of the... Wouldn't you like that thing when it goes, and two or three would prophesy? Because actually, you sort of go, and we're just going to begin to worship the Lord. And suddenly the Lord reveals himself to people. And suddenly, everybody's up at the chair. Got a word, got a word, got a word. And they go, no, not yet, no. And then you're going to think about, which word shall I bring then? And then you're thinking, oh no, just going to pick on Fleur again. No, if I say to Fleur, no, I could upset Fleur. And I'm thinking, no, mustn't upset Fleur. Let Fleur do it. You know, and we're battling. I've never been in a meeting like this. Never been in a meeting when I've had 70 people standing at my door going, I've got a word from the God. I've usually been in a meeting, something goes like something, has anybody got a word anywhere? 
Has Jenny Hogg gone to sleep? Please revive her. Poke her. Do something with her. You know, that sort of stuff. They're actually the spirit. How can we know that we are not full of the spirit, folks? That the prophecies are not rising out of us. It ought to be, okay, well, we're not having them. Let's stop then. Ask the Holy Spirit to come. Because sons and daughters should be bursting out with revelation from God. You can tell. How do I know that I'm not full this morning? Haven't prophesied. It's a simple test, isn't it? So for the ones that did, hey, but I'm with you, guys. Now, come on. We need to come on. I'm not. <laughs> Denzel, you're in real trouble. Think about it. Deuteronomy 18, verses 18. I will raise them up. I will raise up for them a prophet like from among you, from their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he will speak them. That's Moses, but when you think about it, that's a prophetic word of coming through. I will raise up people. Once I raise up this one person, now I'll raise up all flesh. They will prophesy, and the elders will have to panic. It'd be great. I'd love to go to Phil and Steve and say one morning, haven't got a clue what to do with this. Wouldn't that be great? It'd be just magnificent to be sweating at the front, thinking, war? 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 to 3. Show the way of love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God indeed. The one who understands them, they utter the mysteries of the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speak to the people for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Can you imagine a devastation of strengthening, encouragement and comfort? You would be all lying on the floor with a lovely glow. Every Sunday, you know, an army of strengthening You'd go out 10 foot tall, wouldn't you? There's people here thinking, the bloke's mad. But just, yes, I am. But listen to the scripture. I am utterly and stupid, but mad. Just imagine, you know, the spirit pours on, pours himself on all flesh. There's a prophesying army coming forward, trying to break through. It comes with strength and encouragement and comfort. Wouldn't you want to be at that church? Thank you, Steve. You weren't with me earlier, but you are now. I'm really... Thank you. Can I just deal with the red herring about old men and young and young men? Just for this once. I am not lapsing over from a young man that does this to an old man that does the other. Okay? It's, it's biblically incorrect. An absolute travesty that what happens is that young men do this and then old men do this. And you can tell when old age becomes because that's what old men do. Rubbish. Who on earth? What Bible did you read? What this is, is that this is uh, seen different old men dream and young men have visions. No. What that means is that all people will have a heightened sense of the word of God. That's what that means. It can come at any time. It's more than, it's actually more about being prepared that God can speak through anybody and at any time than it is in regard to the specifics. I don't want to be put in that category, but 65 now, Nigel. That means he's now into the old man category. (laughs) 
When the Spirit of God is poured out, he reveals himself to all people in all ways. That's what this is about. How do I know that? Because there's no discrimination. The pouring out of the Spirit brings supernatural, unlikely community. Sons, daughters, old men, young men, male, female servants in those days poured out my Spirit. It's a picture of the church that would be that's why a little bit, you've heard me bang on a little bit, that's why we don't want to do student church. Just, just checking that you, don't you go to sleep on me because I, I have a word for you. It will be public. But it's why we don't want to do student church. Because can you imagine being in this meeting and suddenly a son prophesies, a daughter, a young man, a male and female servant do. It's just magnificent. You just have to think, no, God is amongst us. The way that God joins us together is by filling us with his spirit. That's how it works. We're nearly at the end. It's finally fulfilled. Joel's prophecy was finally fulfilled at Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost outclasses everything that we see in the Old Testament a way of knowing and understanding the Spirit that was, that was blessing, but not like the way that, that uh, they want us to know the Spirit, which is extraordinary. The Spirit led them to faith. We know that with Abraham. David knew what it was like to have times when he said he was full of the Spirit. Samson knew times when he, had t- when he was empowered by the Spirit. Bazalel built the temple with the help of the Spirit. Micah knew the Spirit could help him with resisting sin. But what is interesting about those guys is that if you read through Scripture, they are longing for a day when the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. They are looking at it. Imagine that David, this is David for heaven's sake. David is looking at it and you think, what a mighty Man of God was David. And he's looking forward thinking, I won't see this. But there will be a day when God, who has done this for me, will do this for all people. These were people that were special times and special sort of places. But they were looking forward. It was, what, it was some people at some time. Now it would be all flesh. And these guys are going, my I'd like to be in their meetings. Do you wonder about that, David? Would you like to come and have a look at our meeting? Do you wonder what he would say? And yet David, from his perspective, is going, I'd like to be in their meetings when this happens. Because he knew the prophets and the kings and the judges. He knew those sort of people. He knew a company of prophets. He knew all those sort of things. He knew people looking past like Moses and all that sort of stuff they'd seen a bit. And he's going, there will be a people when this will happen on everyone. So let's bring this to conclusion. A new way of the Spirit. What is this new way of receiving this poured out Spirit? John's Gospel tells us it will be like living waters. Rivers of living waters. (laughs) Wow. I have had the uh, joy of traveling uh, to to Brazil, and I've had the joy of being in London. The Thames goes slow. 
In Brazil, rivers go fast. In the Thames, logs go. In Brazil, logs go. They go. Streams of living waters. Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians tell us that we will receive joy. We will receive power. We will receive freedom. We will receive calling. We will witness. We will have supernatural character. We will have gifts of the Spirit. We will be left in abundance. We will have prayer that will not burden us. Good plug for the prayer meeting. We will be, there will, the word of God will come like a magnet. We will cry, Abba, Father. We will understand adoption. We will know what it is to be a son and more. Now we know how we're doing. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 9. don't want to preach on this, but because uh, we're doing that later. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow what? Rivers of living waters. Now, this he said about the Spirit. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. The invitation is universal and yet it's conditional. There's no ethnic, there's no intellectual or social qualifications for drinking from Jesus. But the invitation, invitation goes out to all. But everyone in this room has a personal invitation to come. There's only one condition. You have to be thirsty. And you have to come. It's simple as that really. You have to want it. I want this. And I'm going to come. Eagerly desire what Jesus has to give. The very last chapter of the Bible leaves this invitation. The spirit and the bride say come. Let him who hears say come. Let him who is thirsty come. Let him who desires the water without price come. I'll try and explain it like this. Everything starts with a soul thirst for, for Jesus and the drinking in of his promises by faith. I believe that he will do this for me. And then a trust that the Spirit will be poured out. And then a physical response to come. It's quite really quite simple. 